Previously on Flying the Line, the United MEC contacts the airline's 570 pre-hires, Pilots United CEO Dick Ferris hired to break the impending strike. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including the Worldwide Accident and Serious Incident Hotline, commonly known as the Orange Card. If you're involved in an accident or serious incident while flying or have a time-critical safety or security event, immediately call the number on the card and you'll talk to an ALPA representative, no matter what time it is. To access the Orange Card, visit alpa.org resources or see the ALPA app. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 16 of B-Scales and ALPA's Future, The United Strike of 1985, Part 3. On May 1, 1985, United began advertising for fleet-qualified pilots who could step immediately into the flight deck. Ferris offered these potential pilots personal services contracts, which paid captains a flat salary of $75,000 per year, and non-captains $50,000. Ferris's actions infuriated United's line pilots, who knew that the airline was already canceling revenue flights because it lacked crews. The 570 were needed immediately, but Ferris kept them off the line as part of his pre-strike maneuvering. To thwart him, Alpha representatives made sure the 570 were fully aware that by resisting a non-merging B-scale, Alpha was fighting their battle. Still, no one could be sure what the 570 would do, and Alpha had no way of influencing, or even contacting, the fleet-qualified applicants. So current United pilots themselves would win or lose the strike. If Ferris could get a critical mass of pilots to cross early enough in the strike, he would win. United's pilots were fully aware that Lorenzo had won at Continental for this same reason. It was an unstated fact that if such a critical mass crossed the picket line, United's pilot leaders would have to call down the strike and admit defeat. But how many pilots would trigger that decision? On May 17th, United's 5,000 pilots launched their work stoppage, picket signs in hand. It was the moment of truth, for deep down, each striker knew that the best job in the world was at stake. One popular lapel button said it all, cross and the great job dies. Each striker's story was different, yet somehow the same. It became a shared moment like no other the kind of experience that would later be taken out and unwrapped like a precious heirloom to be examined at leisure in a thousand pilot lounge conversations. Whatever United's pilots were before the strike, they would never be the same after. One thing any airline executive should think about before provoking a strike is that it gives pilots a chance to get to know each other. Most pilots lead professional lives in relative isolation, never really getting acquainted with many of their colleagues. During normal operations, a big percentage is always flying. But in a strike, 
With everybody grounded and engaged in a cooperative effort, real solidarity and friendship can emerge. The group had 95% honoring the picket line that first day. These were people who never went to ALPA meetings, who suddenly realized what the situation was. Since then, the United Pilots have had this camaraderie, this unity, because it became painfully obvious that this was a non-economic strike aimed at destroying the airline pilot profession. Round one went to ALPA when all but six of the 570 not-quite-hired second officers refused to work. This development was critical, because if the 570 had crossed, it might have undermined any first officers who would have jumped at the chance to secure instant captaincies. Stung by the refusal of all but six of the 570 to cross the picket line, Ferris accelerated his hiring of permanent replacement fleet-qualified flyers, but he couldn't find enough of them to break the strike. It all came down to the same fact. United's pilots could control their own fate if they could hold their own lines. On May 1st, Ferris had predicted to the Chicago Tribune that 40% of his pilots would cross the picket line, Keeping in mind his private prediction to Hank Duffy that he expected victory when 30% crossed, how close did he come? After 29 days, the United Pilot Group ended up right at 6% who went to work, and that number held. Confronted by a unified pilot group, with the strike costing United literally millions each day, Ferris reluctantly, under shareholder and lender pressure, agreed to a five-year B-scale with negotiations and binding arbitration to follow. He could have extended such a proposal earlier with far less trouble and expense. By the simple act of sustaining their picket lines, United's pilots had succeeded in calling his bluff. The B-scale game was no longer on the table, so five days after the strike's inception, Ferris settled. The strike would continue for another 24 days because of difficulties over the back-to-work agreement, often the most wrenching aspect of any strike. At issue was the fate of the 570 and the flight attendants who had honored ALPA's lines. Ferris had also sent termination notices to a number of strike leaders, including Rick Dubinsky, which created another stumbling block. When the strike finally ended on June 14th, Critical postmortems began coming in from outside. Pilots from other airlines, perhaps reflecting a touch of envy, spoke of the United Pilot Group. Stories circulated that United's pilots called down their strike only because massive numbers were on the verge of crossing. Such speculative disaster scenarios, like all what ifs in history, can neither be proven nor disproven. But United MEC Chair Roger Hall offered an explanation. He said that at 26 days into the strike, the picket line was holding very well and that the pilots legally had no choice but to settle the status of the 570 through court action. The only remaining issue was the flight attendants getting a back-to-work agreement. At that point, Patty Friend, president of United's Association of Flight Attendants, encouraged Hall to go back to work. The flight attendants could not negotiate a back-to-work agreement and intended to go to court. Other employees needed to get back to work too, and the only way they could do that is if United's airplanes were flying. 
Hall noted that Alpa gave financial support to the flight attendants until the strike ended, and eventually they were successful in court. If massive numbers of United pilots were preparing to cross the line if the strike had gone on only a few more days, it constitutes a tribute to the leadership and wisdom of Roger Hall and Rick Dubinsky. The essential attribute of strike leadership is to recognize the precise moment, neither too late nor too early, when the time to settle arrives. Too late, and the strike becomes a holy war, which means that even in victory, the Union loses because it destroys its company or its own jobs, as the Eastern Strike of 1989 proved. At the very worst, United's pilots won a clear-cut draw. Given the way things have been going for Alpa, that counted as a victory. Criticizing the outcome of the strike is a little like complaining about George Washington running away from the British early in the American Revolution. During the battles of Long Island and Brooklyn Heights, Washington realized that by pressing the issue, he risked getting cut off from the mainland. So he disengaged, strategically retreated his army, and kept intact his striking power. So long as Washington's army remained whole, the revolution and the nation lived. But if Washington pressed a battle past the point of prudence, he risked not only losing just a battle, but everything. In war, only the last battle counts. Alpa was in the midst of what would become a long war. Deregulation had wrought changes that profoundly altered the relationship between labor and management. United's pilots fought Alpa's Battle of Long Island in 1985. If they had lost, their epitaph would also have been Alpa's as a viable union. Their victory, however qualified, proved to be a watershed, for aside from Frank Lorenzo's suicidal attempt on Eastern, it discouraged any further assaults on Alpa during the 1980s. In one sense, United's pilots came away with a clear-cut victory, for they had dared to strike and held their ranks against a determined opponent. They were still fit to fight at the end, but to have pressed the strike to a finish over the 570 or the flight attendants would have been foolish. Although the 570 lost, on average, something like 600 numbers of seniority to pilots hired during or after the strike, Alpa won a complete victory for the 570 in 1993, when the courts ruled that United had illegally denied them their rightful seniority. They were immediately jumped in seniority over the 600 who had been hired after them. Every professional airline pilot still covered by an Alpa contract owes the 570 a debt of gratitude. By courageously acting in concert with United striking pilots, they allowed the pilots to settle the issue directly, without fear of their flank crumbling. United's pilots had halted the debilitating slide that had affected Alpa since the onset of deregulation. They had bought time. It was now up to the politicians in Alpa's national offices to make the most of it. Next time on Flying the Line, following watershed strikes at Continental and United, mergers test Alpa's strength and determination. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 16, Part 3 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, 
copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2024, all rights reserved.